To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. A test of sorts on the program today. How far back does your economic memory go? From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Wednesday today, the 10th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. Okay. Something different in the first half of the program today. And I'm going to set it up by counting backwards by Fed chairs. Powell, Yellen, Bernanke to Greenspan. Alan Greenspan is known for a lot of things. Maybe best, though, to lay people, probably. For a certain phrase he gave in a certain speech back in 1996, by which time, by the by, he had been Fed chair for almost a decade How do we know when irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values, which then become subject to unexpected and prolonged contractions as they have in Japan over the past decade? And how do we factor that assessment into monetary policy? Irrational exuberance, kind of classic Greenspanese there, maybe the epitome of FedSpeak, right? About eight years ago, I did an interview with Sebastian Malaby. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And we were talking about his book. It's called The Man Who Knew the Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. And we've decided to get him back on for a series we're doing, looking back at interviews gone by. Sebastian Malaby, it is great to speak with you again. Yeah, great to be with you. It occurred to me as I was getting ready for this interview and reviewing your book that it came out in 2016. But more to the point, uh, Alan Greenspan left the Fed in 2006, which means there's a whole generation of economic actors in this country and, and on the planet who don't really know who he is or what he did. And I guess my first question is, why does Alan Greenspan still matter? Well, he was the longest tenured uh, Fed chair in quite a while. He served for 18 and a half years, more than twice as long as Ben Bernanke, more than twice as long as Janet Yellen. And on top of that, Alan Greenspan had also been chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Ford administration back in the 1970s. And I'd say uh, there was a a 40-year period um, from the mid-60s to the mid-2000s when he was kind of in the public square which maps on to the making of modern finance in the United States. Yeah, so dig down into the whole uh, uh, creation of modern finance in the United States. What was Greenspan's role there, and, and how does that manifest today? 
Well, first of all, what do we mean by the making of modern finance? In the late 1960s, uh, interest rates were regulated. Capital flows across borders were regulated. Derivatives hardly existed. Currencies couldn't fluctuate because they were pegged together. Uh, and so really the freewheeling modern system did not exist. And from the end of the 60s, the emergence of inflation, all of that started to crack. Technology drove uh, the creation of derivatives. And it all leads up to the 2008 financial crisis when that freewheeling system came unstuck. And Greenspan's role during this period was partly to be in the debate, to be observing. But when he became chairman of the Fed in 1987, he went from an influential thinker and debater uh, to a sort of a central actor. And um, that's where I think there's a really rich discussion to be had about where he was at fault and where he might have been right. Well, seeing as how it's only a half an hour program, we're going to have to not have a rich discussion, but I do want to have a sort of a truncated version of it. I, I guess the first thing I want to give him credit for is is what he did right in getting the American economy to where it is today. Yeah, I think his central contribution was to get inflation really properly anchored. Of course, Paul Volcker, who was chairman of the Fed for eight years before Greenspan, is correctly credited with breaking the back of the 1970s mm -hmm. inflation, bringing it down from, you know, around 10% to around 4%. But then when Greenspan took over, the job had not been finished. It was still 4%, higher than what is now the modern target of 2%. And Greenspan um, surprised people by being very tough about completing the job, denying the Republican politicians who had appointed him as, as Fed chairman, denying them what they wanted. So George H.W. Bush, mm -hmm. the first President Bush, was expecting Greenspan to be compliant, to cut interest rates to help his political prospects. Greenspan refused. And in so doing, he brought inflation down. And at the same time, he demonstrated that the Fed could be independent from politicians, uh, which kind of further anchored market expectations of what inflation was going to be. More to come in a second on Fed independence and market expectations as it regards to the Fed. But uh, all of that credit where credit's due that you just mentioned, where did he blow it? Where did he go wrong? Where he blew it, I think, is in thinking that 2% inflation was the be-all and end-all. Because it turns out, of course, that um, economies can be disrupted by things other than uh, the price of eggs <laughs> going up too fast. The price of nest eggs matters too. In other words, asset markets, stock markets, bond markets, real estate markets, when these things go up too fast and then they crash, that is what actually caused the recession in the US um, in uh, 2001, that was the sort of prelude to mm -hmm. that recession when the tech bubble burst. Then you get the real estate bubble uh, bursting um, in 2008 and leading to the sharp recession that was experienced after that was yet another demonstration of how disruptive uh, asset price gyrations can be. And Greenspan did not pay attention to that yet adequately. Come with me now to today. Um, and Jay Powell, who is, let's see, one, two, I guess three removed from Chairman Greenspan, um, Powell talks all the time 
about Paul Volcker and has, as much as said, he tried to emulate his decision-making process and, and the way he thinks about the central bank and its role. You don't hear Greenspan coming in out of his mouth practically at all. Yeah, I think because Volcker is remembered, you know, unambiguously as the tough guy who came in when inflation was way too high. You know, Greenspan's reputation suffered, of course, when 2008 happened. He had left the Fed in 2006, but clearly he had presided over the conditions that led to this real estate collapse and to the financial crisis in 2008. Mm. And so whereas he had been celebrated as the maestro, uh, to quote the title (laughs) of a book about him that came out uh, back in around 2000, um, by the time he uh, had retired, he went, I would say, from hero to zero, Mm -hmm. faster than anybody else I can think of in American public life. You mentioned the Fed's independence and, by extension, its credibility. Um, Where do you think today the Fed's credibility sits with the last two-ish years of inflation they've had to deal with and, and, you know, the Fed's role in, in the 2008 financial crisis as well? I think in terms of the recent inflation, um, history will relate and maybe public opinion will come to accept that this was really an extraordinary episode of trying to steer the economy through something like COVID. And I think one should um, credit the Fed with at least having got the inflation back down again. So I think the Fed's credibility is pretty good on that score. I think in terms of the 2008 saga. Um, People criticized the Fed for a failure to regulate derivatives, a failure to regulate um, irresponsible mortgage lending by financial institutions. Uh, And people say, well, that's what led to the financial crisis. I think there's a more complex story, which is that sometimes on some of those issues, the Fed did try and politics made it impossible. For example, clamping down on crazy mortgages and, and generally getting mortgage finance under control is something that would have involved getting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, uh, capped in their size. And that you know those institutions are so well connected politically that although Greenspan tried that, he was thwarted. So I think they tried more than is understood. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you're right that in the public perception both 08 and the 2021 inflation is going to you know, be a black mark. Hmm. Just on the politics of, of monetary policy in this economy, um, as a guy who studies this, do you worry about the Fed's independence? I mean, every now and then there are spasms of, oh, we've got to crack down on the Fed from Congress. And one does imagine that one day it might stick. Sure. I mean, um, if President Trump were to be reelected, Um, his regard for American institutions is limited, it seems, and the Fed would be on his list. Uh, And I was worried in the first Trump administration that this would cause a severe compromising of Fed independence. I was pleasantly surprised that actually the Fed navigated through pretty well and and escaped. Uh, But whether that would happen in a second Trump term, I think nobody can guess. As you sit here and and we're now like nine years out from you having written this book, um, what's the postscript you would write today? Well, I think part of the postscript is to observe that the mistake that Greenspan made in not raising interest rates to fight the asset bubble in real estate was sort of repeated uh, in uh, COVID. 
um, there was a moment when the Fed could have, should have tightened interest rates faster. And one signal that would have encouraged that was the fact that the stock market was going nuts. I mean, it was just mm. roaring upwards. Another thing is that it's a problem when the Fed becomes too obsessed with signaling what it's going to do, then starting to do it slowly, and then um, finally getting around to it, which is kind of what happened with raising interest rates coming out of COVID. Uh, there was a reluctance on the part of the Fed to surprise the markets by suddenly saying, right, inflation is properly stuck in, we've got to raise rates and we're going to do it now and we're going to do it in size. That is what Greenspan would have done. Uh, that's what he did do in 1994. But it became sort of the wisdom um, in the second part of Greenspan's tenure and then very much cemented by Chairmans Bernanke and Yellen that you should always signal in advance, not take markets by surprise. And I think that was a lesson that was overlearned. Well, so let's talk about that for a second, because you did a, a piece in Foreign Affairs in, in which you discussed this signaling. It's the forward guidance is the is the term of art. What I hear you saying is that the Fed ought to, ought to just do stuff and not worry so much about the market's feelings. Exactly. That's what I think. I mean, I think the, the markets um, need to be reassured when you're in a position where you've already cut interest rates to zero, and so an additional way of stimulating the economy is to promise the markets that you won't surprise them with an interest rate hike. That then gets long-term interest rates to fall a little bit extra. And that's useful when you're trying to stimulate uh, the economy. But on the other hand, that you know ceased to be the right prescription once inflation started to pick up in 21. And I think we just need to learn that surprising the markets is okay in this environment. How do you reckon? That, that's an interesting thought. And I would love to see that play out in real life just once to see what would happen if the markets actually got surprised and, and, and maybe we'd all learn a lesson. But look, how do you reconcile that just do stuff um, uh, uh, paradigm with the, the, the political awareness that we know Jay Powell has and that we know Alan Greenspan had, right? They are both, and we're, well, they're both still alive. So they are both very political animals, and it's just not in their nature to to just do things, you know? I think that's the modern reality, but it was not um, true in 1994, for example. I mean, in 1994, what happened was that... When we had the last uh, soft landing, we have to... Just set that for everybody, right? The last time the Fed actually negotiated a soft landing. Correct. And um, on the way to that soft landing, it's useful to remember that Greenspan raised rates uh, and surprised the markets, raised them aggressively, repeatedly, caused hedge funds to blow up, caused uh, almost caused a big bank failure. It caused a lot of financial pain. But as you just pointed out correctly, the real economy had a soft landing. And I think that's where we draw the lesson is that mm -hmm. sometimes shocking the financial system, causing pain in the financial system is a salutary lesson for risk takers on Wall Street and can be coupled with a soft landing from Main Street. 
The book uh, by Sebastian Malby, which was out in 2016, is called The Man Who Knew the Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Obviously, we've talked about much more uh, than just that. He is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Sebastian, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. There was some exuberance on Wall Street today. Not a whole lot, though. Don't know whether it was rational or irrational. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. Coming up, the new, new thing out there, bovines, I guess. I have so many guys right now that are looking to buy cows this year, like, I can't find cows for these guys. Can't find cows. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrial's up 170 points today, about a half percent, 37,695. The Nasdaq increased 111 points, triple sticks, three quarters of 1%, 14,969. The S&P 500 picked up 26 points, about six-tenths percent, 47 and 83. Amazon has announced another round of cuts. The company plans to lay off hundreds of workers in Prime Video and MGM Studios. That's according to an internal email to employees. Last year, Amazon cut more than 27,000 jobs company-wide. Shares ticked up one and six-tenths percent. Today, diesel truck engine manufacturer Cummins settled with the Department of Justice in California for more than $1.6 billion dollars. That's after the company installed devices that circumvented emissions testing on hundreds of thousands of engines. Cummins drove down about one-tenth of one percent today. Bonds did as well. The yield on the 10-year T-note up to 4.03 percent. You're listening to Marketplace. This Marketplace podcast is supported by Palo Alto Networks. As you innovate to transform your business in today's digital world, How do you stay secure? At Palo Alto Networks, our mission is to protect your digital way of life. Whether it's unprecedented opportunities or uncertainties with AI and whatever comes next, we continually deliver innovation to make each day safer and more secure than the one before. More at paloaltonetworks.com. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Alan Greenspan was and is, to be clear, very much is a data guy. So here with the economic data point of this Wednesday, inventories at the wholesale level. That is stuff on wholesaler shelves that they're stocking up to sell to retailers to then sell to us. Wholesale inventories in November down two-tenths percent from October, down three percent from a year ago. So what you ask? Well, to the experts we go. I'm Laura Veldkamp. I'm the Cooperman Professor of Economics and Finance at Columbia Business School. My name is Sonia Lipinski, and I'm a partner and managing director at Alex Partners with the retail practice. I think what retailers are trying to do is just remain cautious. They went through so much turmoil given COVID, given the supply chain issues, and it really took a hit to their profitability. Those cautious retailers are ordering less inventory because they don't think consumers are going to buy like they slash we have been. The people don't expect sales to be very strong going forward is bad news, but kind of good news because it tells us inflation is probably not going to get out of hand. Which, not for nothing, is a whole lot like what a soft landing looks like. Now, what do some of the retailers who buy wholesale have to say about their inventories? I'm Ashley Morkin, and I'm the owner of Unglued in Fargo, North Dakota. 
My name is Irene Kesselman. I am the owner of Alley Cat Toys in Carboro, North Carolina. One of the key parts of inventory management for retailers and wholesalers, by the way, getting all that stuff from warehouse to store shelf. So I definitely have noticed freight charges, the the threshold or the minimums that they're requiring have gone up over the past year. And that's something that I consider as well when I'm looking at orders and writing. I would say that we've changed um, who we're ordering from based on how their shipping has changed. So some of them have actually dramatically gone up, whereas some have gone to just totally free shipping. And that's definitely impacted what we're ordering. Wholesalers, retailers, consumers, kind of an economic life cycle right there. To judge by those wholesale inventories we were just talking about, our inflation future looks pretty good. But as we all know, prices the past couple of years have been on a pretty wild ride. Food prices in particular. We'll get an update tomorrow when the Consumer Price Index come out. But generally, food prices should be lower, and we should notice that at the store. Our grocery bills maybe start being a little less frightening. Yeah, maybe don't hold your breath, as Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. It is a chilly morning at the Treasure Valley Livestock Auction in Caldwell, Idaho. In a compact indoor arena, about 60 ranchers sit on metal bleachers around a pen, looking at their phones, chatting, drinking coffee. Every few minutes, a handful of cows are ushered into the pen. And the auctioneer, a young guy in a black cowboy hat, starts the bidding. That would be $2 a pound for these cows. The auctioneer is pointing to different parts of the arena, jumping a little in the booth. The bids keep rising. Final bid, $2.50 a pound. These are record calf prices that we've been having this year. Zach Zumstein is the auctioneer at Treasure Valley Livestock. He tells me what I just saw was a hot cattle market. Not that I could really tell by looking at the crowd. It didn't look like anyone was bidding. Yeah, there's a some of them will wink to you, some of them move a finger. But you, I deal with all these guys every week, so you kind of learn their little quirks. Zoomstein has been coming to cattle auctions here since he was a kid. And he says he has never seen the market like this. It's great, and I hope it stays this way. Great for ranchers. They are getting record prices. Maybe not so great for burger lovers. The culprit pushing prices up? Supply and demand. The supply of cows is low. So low, Zoomstein says, it can actually be hard to source cattle for the auctions. I have so many guys right now that are looking to buy cows this year. Like, I can't find cows for these guys. The number of beef cattle in the U.S. is the lowest it's been in years. Part of this dates back to the pandemic when safety issues at meatpacking plants and supply chain snags meant ranchers couldn't sell their cows. At the same time, the cost of the hay to feed those cows went through the roof. So there was a huge supply of of cows. And if you had a cow when you came in that looked at you kind of crazy in the pen, you were getting rid of her because you couldn't afford to feed her. And So the herds got smaller. The herds got considerably smaller. When supply chains started to normalize and demand for beef spiked, Ranchers started growing their herds again. But it takes years before a cow is old enough to sell for beef. So increasing the supply of beef takes time. 
In the meantime, Zoomstein says the high prices have been great for ranchers. And so far, the beef eaters of America seem pretty undaunted. Bill Lapp is a food industry consultant at Advanced Economic Solutions. He says demand for beef is up since the pandemic began. That is in spite of the fact that beef prices rose more than any other meat last year. Consumers have pretty inelastic demand on beef. Inelastic demand. That is economists speak for people don't care. They just want their beef. But something else could be causing this inelasticity, because if you step back a bit, beef prices don't actually look so beefy. Everything in the grocery store has its own version of beef's COVID journey. And Lap says the end is the same. Prices are up. I think a lot of consumers are focused on that, that I'm paying so much more than I was three years ago. Since February of 2020, just before the pandemic, beef has gotten about 30% more expensive. That is a lot. But I asked Lap, is that more than other meats? Well, you've come to the right man for that. The price of chicken didn't increase at all last year. But since the pandemic, it's jumped 45%. Pork chops are 27% more expensive. And eggs, despite being the MVP of price drops in 2023, they're still very, very elevated. Eggs are nearly 50% more expensive than they were pre-pandemic. Now, eggs, of course, are an exceptional case. There was an avian flu that killed millions of birds. But still, high prices have hit every aisle in the grocery store. Food prices overall have risen about 25% since COVID hit. Lap says we are in uncharted food inflation territory. In this period of time, this has been very different because it's been a much more sustained, much more dramatic increase in costs. And this right here is why, in spite of the really positive inflation news we got last year, going to the grocery store can still feel a little bit like getting poked with a cattle prod. Inflation did come down in 2023, but that just means prices rose more slowly. Of course, prices rising, at least a little bit, is seen as the sign of a healthy economy. Like the bidding happening in this Idaho cattle auction. And with the economy looking pretty healthy so far this year, says Lap, we can probably expect to keep getting a little less beef for our buck. In Caldwell, Idaho, I'm Stacey Vanek Smith for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today, which comes with two obligatory warnings. Number one, please, 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 please consult your own financial advisor. And number two, remember, only invest as much as you can afford to lose. Here with the news. This afternoon, the Securities and Exchange Commission approved something called the Bitcoin Exchange Traded Funds, ETFs, they're called. Funds that are similar to mutual funds, but that trade like stocks, these with Bitcoin as the underlying asset. So, yes... It is now easier for people to invest, that's in air quotes, in Bitcoin. But as SEC Chair Gary Gensler said in a statement today, the commission is approving Bitcoin ETFs. It is not endorsing Bitcoin. Caveat emptor is the phrase. Our media production team is Brian Allison, Jake Cherry, Justin Dooler, Drew Jostad, Gary O'Keefe, Charlton Thorpe, Juan Carlos Toronto, and Becca Weinman. Jeff Peters is in charge. He's the manager of media production. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves. 
but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.